0: law matters live show is created to give law enforcement a voice rather than a soundbite and in doing so we have also given you a voice with federal state and local law enforcement agencies the legal community government officials and our military join us every saturday morning at 8 a.m you will hear truthful up-to-date information that's valuable to you and your family please show your support by going to lawmatters1030.org and join our 10:30 challenge your contributions do make a difference now let's start the show
1: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Mark Barnes, who's an enrolled agent and owner of Copper Canyon Tax Service. And we're going to put him on the spot. He's going to answer all your questions. But before we start, I want to remind everybody, I am a loan officer and Rocket Mortgage is not the person I work for. So we don't pick those ads that's put there. I don't know who puts it there, but we don't
0: pick those ads. Mark. Good, good morning. morning. How are you? I'm here. Tax season has started. And, and <laughs> let's see what kind of questions we can answer today.
1: Okay. We've, when I asked people to send in questions and I'm told people are going to be here, I did get a lot of questions. But if you haven't sent in your question, the number is 790-2040. Call in. This is your opportunity to get answers while you're sitting there with all this paperwork all over your dining room table trying to figure out your taxes. Okay one of the questions was when someone makes an auction item donation and they say the value is let's say $500 but at the auction it sells for $200 what does the charity do how do they write the thank you note what number do they put in there thank you for 500 or 200
0: so this one this is an interesting one and the rules changed on this a couple years ago and When I say a couple years ago, I don't even remember. Maybe six, seven, eight years ago. And a lot of this stemmed from the car, boat, those types of donations where you donate your car to charity and you can take a deduction for it. And, of course, somebody would tow something out of their yard that had flat tires, no engine, no interior, and say, hey, this was a $5,000 car. Well, yeah. They would put that down on their taxes (laughs) and take a deduction for this amazing car that they donated. And then in reality, the charity would tow that off to the scrapyard and they would get $87 for scrap metal cost on it. (laughs) And so the rules changed where you're not allowed to take a deduction on that type of a donation until the charity sells it or converts it to business use. And at that time, they're going to let you know what they sold it for or they're going to have an appraised value if they convert it over to business use. And then they're going to send you a letter. Thanks for donating your 1952 rust bucket. (laughs) We sold your car for $150. It doesn't matter what you think the car was worth. In the real world, it sold in an arm's length transaction for $150, and that's your donation deduction.
1: So sentimental value means nothing when yeah. you're applying, you know, um, your taxes.
0: And when you get into other stuff like somebody donated art or some other personal item, you have that emotional attachment and that has to be separated out in this. Great, you painted a picture and you think it's worth a ton of money, but what is somebody willing to actually pay for that item? And in the tax world, that's it's called an arm's length transaction. And that's when a willing buyer and a willing seller come to an agreement on a price. So no matter what you think your art was worth, if somebody was willing to pay $200 for it, that would be the fair market value for that particular item.
1: Okay. So I hope that clears it up because it can get confusing, especially when it comes to donations. If you're donating, this is another donation question. It's not on my list, but I, I had somebody <laughs> I had somebody ask me, when you're donating to like Goodwill or any of these, you know Casa de los Niños, any of these places, do you write down, do you itemize what you're donating, and have get a receipt for what you gave them for tax purposes?
0: So if you're talking about donating items versus donating cash. There's a threshold of $500. Once you exceed $500, you have to fill out separate reporting with your tax return, and you have to give some information about this donation. What did you donate? How did you arrive at the value? What did you originally pay for this? When did you buy it? When did you donate it? So... We've had some people over the years that we had one a few years ago. They lost their job, and their job provided them with housing. They already had a house in Tucson that was fully furnished, so they needed to get rid of everything that was in the house. So that was an example of someone that got an appraiser out there, and as items came out of the house, they were appraised, went on a truck, and that donation ended up being about $60,000. But we had a fully itemized list of every single item, how we arrived at the value, when it was donated, and then they just had to go back and try to remember what they paid for it. Um, if you're talking about I took some T-shirts over to Goodwill and I tossed them in the bin and that's worth $20, yeah, don't really worry about itemizing that out okay. too much. But if you're if you're constantly taking stuff over and you're talking about donating thousands of dollars a year, yeah, you certainly need to have an itemized list that backs up everything that's been donated.
1: Yeah, I know some people who've had uh, family members pass away and they just, you know, call, call the charity and say, bring your truck over here and take it away without doing anything about itemizing value or anything. And I'm like, oh, my God, how are you going to declare that on your taxes?
0: It, it When you get to that side of it, one, when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, taxes usually aren't the first thing that's on your mind. True. And so that's fair. I, I understand that but from a tax perspective unless you have a lot of other stuff that's going to go down as itemized deductions that donation by itself probably isn't going to get you there and keeping track of that type of stuff if you know you're not going to itemize is just a waste of time okay it really is like you know if you're if you don't have a mortgage or if you're renting and you don't have those things to write off you live in a state with low income taxes and you you got $1,000 or $1,200 worth of stuff that you've donated to charity, there's no reason to keep track of that.
1: Okay.
0: And I'll change my answer on that in a few minutes when we get to the... (laughs) You can write off up to $600 in charitable donations without itemizing this year, but that's a one-year. It was $300 last year. It's $600 this year if you're married filing jointly, but that goes away next year. So for two years, my answer is a little different.
1: (laughs) That's that's the why you're here. I mean they've changed the rules so many times you can't keep up. Okay, what what about we because we've had all the stimulus check stuff going on, what if you're supposed to get a check and you never it never arrived, can you use that amount as a credit towards taxes owed?
0: The stimulus payments, I can I speak for the industry as a whole. We're going to be glad when this is done. And we don't have to try to reconcile these stimulus payments or advance child tax credit payments on your tax return. The basics of it are, if the IRS sent you a stimulus check, whether you received it or not, it needs to be reported properly on your tax return. What happens when you mail in a tax return or electronically file a tax return that's claiming a stimulus payment and the IRS says they already sent you a stimulus payment, is it's considered a math error. And there's a few things in the tax code that result in a math error. And what that means for the listeners, your tax return goes into a special pile where somebody gets to look at it with their own two eyeballs. And there was still about 6 million tax returns from last year that haven't been looked at. So you don't want to send this in and say, hey, I, you know, I don't think I got a stimulus payment, or try to be crafty and say, hey, I got a stimulus payment, I wonder if they'll send me more money if I put no. Because your tax return's gonna go in this special bin, and you, it could be a year before you get your refund as they try to catch up and go through all these tax returns with a math error. Now, if they didn't send you a stimulus payment at all, let's say your prior year income was high, you didn't qualify for a stimulus payment, When you file your tax return, if your income's lower, you got laid off, let go, your employer closed, whatever the case may be, and your income was low, and now you qualify for a stimulus payment, yes, you would put on there that you did not receive a stimulus payment. You now qualify for one, and you would receive that, and it shows up as a payment against your taxes. So if you already were getting a refund, it would enhance your refund. If you owed some money, it would reduce what you owed either to zero or beyond zero and you would get a refund. But if they sent you one, whether through direct deposit that never made it to your account because you were using some type of a like a refund advanced loan, when you sign up for those things, your direct deposit then goes through a third-party bank. Your stimulus payment may have been sent to that third-party bank and then eventually returned to the IRS and it's sitting in limbo. Or if they mailed you a check, never got there. Things get lost. The real problem comes in when the IRS started issuing, like, prepaid Visa cards with the stimulus dollars on there. I have lots of clients that receive those, and I got lots of phone calls and texts when they started showing up. It's in an unmarked envelope. If you've ever received a prepaid Visa card as a gift from a family member, it comes in an envelope with nothing on it. And I'm sure that lots of those went right into the garbage or recycle bin. So if any of those things apply, you don't put it on your taxes. You don't get a credit for it unless you want your return on hold. But you can call a number at the IRS, and that number is 1-800-919-9835. And they'll be able to tell you if a payment was issued to you or not. Or you can also complete IRS form 3911, 3911, and both of those are going to start the process of tracing your stimulus payment. So they're going to look and say, yes, a check was issued to you, or yes, a debit card was issued to you, and that was never cashed, that debit card was never activated, and then that'll get the process started of getting it reissued to you. But that's outside of your tax return. You don't file this with your tax return, this is a separate filing that needs to go in to address those stimulus payments.
1: But you send it to the same address?
0: You send it, they'll be, I mean, if you're filling out the 3911, you'll want to go through the instructions, then they'll have a mailing address in there. I don't know what the address is offhand. Oh, come on, um, But Mark. it's in the, yeah, there's only like a million different addresses for the IRS.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that, that phone number again was 1-800-919-9835. So if you've got questions or concerns, that's the number you call. Okay, what if you're still waiting for last year's refund? How do you move forward with this year's filing?
0: So it's weird. It's almost like we just talked about how your tax return gets put on hold for an eternity Yeah. Uh, just a minute ago. So if you're still waiting <laughs> for last year's refund, this would be step one. Verify that your tax return has been filed. And accepted by the IRS.
1: How do you do that?
0: Um, If you filed it through a tax professional, they can tell you. Um, In my office, we have our software set up so that when your tax return is acknowledged by the IRS, it sends the taxpayer a copy of form, uh, what is it, 9435, and that's their electronic filing confirmation And it puts the number on there. There's a number that the IRS assigns to it. So our software is set up to do that automatically so that they know it's been accepted. Step two, head to irs.gov. There's a button on there for where's my refund. Click on that. Put in your information and see what it says. That'll tell you right there if it's been accepted at the IRS or if it's on hold Or if there's some other problem, and if there's some other problem, I think it prompts with a telephone number to call. There's a few reasons that you may not have received it. One of those is you put the wrong stimulus amount on there, and it's on hold due to a math error. There's also a ton of tax returns that are on hold at the IRS because of ID issues. And at some point, the IRS would have mailed you a letter that says, hey, we need to confirm your identity before we complete processing of your tax return. And if you didn't do anything with that letter, if you threw that letter away, the IRS is still waiting for you to confirm your identity.
1: How do you you confirm your identity? The
0: the letter's going to have a telephone number to call. You're going to call that number, and they're just going to ask you some basic information that you, as the taxpayer, would know. Okay. Dates of birth, Social Security number, things of that nature that you're going to know that you can use to confirm your identity and then say, yes, I did file that tax return. Because usually that's a question of there's something on your tax return that looks funny.
1: <laughs> if something looks funny. I'm not sure I'd want to say, yeah, that's me.
0: <laughs> well, I, when you get into something looks funny, it could be a situation where you had a new child, you moved, and you got a new job all in the same year. Okay. And so from the IRS's perspective, you have three new things on your tax return that don't add up to what they saw the previous year, and they just want to verify before they release money instead of it being somebody filing a false fraudulent tax return on your behalf where they made up an employer, they changed your address because they don't know where you live, and they added a kid because they got somebody's information somewhere. And so all they're doing is looking to have you verify that it's you – and that you did file that tax return, and then they get it processed, and then the refund will go out. But the big problem with that is people ignore the IRS, and these tax returns sit on hold sometimes for months and months and months because people get scared, or they don't want to call the IRS, or they never opened the letter, or they threw it away. or
1: Why is that? Why do people, you know, you've got this letter from the IRS. The first thing you need to do or should want to do is Respond because ignoring it just makes it worse. Don't you think?
0: Yes. I mean, you and I know that, but there's a lot of people out there that...
1: If I ignore it, it'll go uh, away?
0: Yeah. (laughs) You have a lot of people that fall into that category. If I ignore it, it'll go away, and it doesn't. The IRS is not going to forget about you. And there's this, you know, it's the whole U.S. tax system where there's just a, a lot of people that aren't thrilled with it. And, it, you know, that really comes back to Congress doing things and writing laws that people don't agree with, or people not seeing the value in the taxes that they pay when these are all, you know, these are all things that come up. But if you're waiting on a refund, I would start off by making sure it usually, if you used a professional, it's not a problem of whether or not it's been accepted. We keep track of all that stuff. If your return came back rejected for some reason, my job is to, as promptly as possible, figure out why it's rejected and fix it and get it resubmitted. Whether it's because there was something entered incorrectly or a date of birth doesn't match or there's a name spelled incorrectly or social security number that was entered. like Whatever the problem was, it's our job to figure that out. Where this really comes into play are people that are filing their own taxes using online software. You punch in some numbers, you hit submit, and then you walk away. And you never come back to actually check to verify that it's been processed or anything. So usually when people's returns are not accepted, it stems from self-preparation and them not coming back to verify that the process has been completed.
1: So you need, you need to know that, you know, it's gone through and they've received it and they're happy, you're happy, and everybody's yeah. happy. And, and that'll you're not going to have an issue.
0: Where you head over to irs.gov and you log in to Where's My Refund. If it says they've never received a tax return for you, that takes us back to step one. Where'd you file your taxes? You need to have a conversation with either yourself or the person that prepared it because it didn't go through and there was some issue in your refund. Turn was rejected.
1: What about these um, faults or people assuming your identity and filing your taxes before you do? What does somebody do in a situation like that when they, oh, it's already been filed?
0: Yeah, Yeah, that was really (laughs) bad a few years ago. And the IRS implemented an identity theft PIN program. And when it first came out, it was only available to people who had an identity theft problem. Right. So if somebody filed, or there was some other reason that your identity was compromised, the IRS would assign you a PIN um, two or three years ago. Because the last, I mean, the last two years have all just blended together. So <laughs> I've lost track <laughs> of time for everybody. <laughs> two or three years ago, they started opening it up to specific markets. And now it's available to everybody. So, so you if,
1: can get a PIN number for your taxes? Yes.
0: Yeah. So if you go online, go to your favorite search engine, and just type in IP, Identity Protection, IP PIN, and IRS, that should get you right to the page where you can get information on getting an identity protection PIN. It's fast, it's automatic. Have your printer ready and turned on because it is going to sign you a number, and you're going to want to print that out because you need that number then to file your taxes.
1: For all of perpetuity.
0: Well, the number lasts for one year. Oh, okay. And next year they're going to send you a different number. And the next year they'll send you a different number. So when you get your PIN, it only works for the current year's tax return. Okay. That way somebody can't steal your PIN and file taxes for you next year because next year you'll have a different PIN number. And every January, you'll get a letter in the mail, and this comes into a whole bunch of other problems. If you move, you need to update your address with the IRS. Otherwise, they're going to mail your ID pin to someone else. (laughs) So it's a great tool, but in order to be effective, you have to think all the rest of the stuff through. If you move, you need to let the IRS know, and you're supposed to let them know anyway, that you have moved. And there's a form for that. Um, Don't quote me on this. I think it's 8832 Um, But it's a change of address form where you're letting the IRS know, hey, here's my old address and here's my new address. They're going to verify that your old address matches what was on the last tax return before they update your address. And that way, when things like stimulus payment checks are mailed out, they go to the right place. When your IEP PIN is mailed out, it goes to the right place. If you're audited, the letter for your audit goes to the right place. The IRS isn't tasked with chasing you down they're tasked with notifying you at the last known address and if you're audited and they mailed it to an address that you no longer live at they've done their job and your audit continues without you
1: and you haven't done your job <laughs> doesn't you know you go for a change of address thing at the post office does that automatically go to the IRS as well
0: no it's okay, not automatic so you have so, to do it yeah this is a different process We run into this every January as a payroll provider and younger people don't look at pay stubs. They look at their bank app and if there's money, there, life is good. And usually what happens is they move, they put in a change of address at the post office, which typically lasts for six months. And then the following year, their W-2 is forwarded to them and they receive it. A year down the line, and it's funny every time, I mean, this happens every single year, Hey, my employee never received their W-2. Great. Let's verify their address. Oh, yeah, they moved. When did they move? Oh, like a year and a half ago. (laughs) Okay. So since then, they've been issued, you know, pick a number. If they get paid every week, 52 times a year and a half. If they get paid every other week, 26 times a year and a half. So they've potentially received 70 paychecks and never once looked at the address. Yeah. To see that it was still being paid and mailed to their old address. So. Yeah, if you do it at the post office, that covers you for a little while. If you want to do it for the IRS, you need to mail in the actual form to the IRS so they can update your information. And that's true for businesses, payroll taxes, individual taxes, estates. All of these things it, have the same process where you need to update your address if something changes or if you move.
1: Does that um, Do you have to do that if you always file online?
0: You would want to do that when you moved, Okay. When you file a new tax return, your address will get updated to whatever address is on the currently filed tax return. But what happens is people will file their taxes on March 1st, and then they move on March 20th. And they do their little thing at the post office, which covers them through the end of September, and IRS notices start coming out in late September, early October, and so you've got a stage now where you're starting to receive IRS letters, your postal forwarding order has expired, and you could be audited, and it could be four months or five months before you file your next tax return, and you'll never receive those notifications.
1: Can they do an audit without you? Yeah. We've, and have and have results without
0: you. Yep, we've represented a couple of cases where audits happened without the taxpayer because they failed to show up. You, you're <laughs> notified that an audit's happening, and the audit happens at that scheduled time. And if you're not there to defend yourself, it doesn't work in your favor. Because you have nothing, there's nobody there to prove your side of the case. So the IRS, anything that they're auditing, they'll assume that they won. And the last one that we had like that, the letter came back with changes, and they owed the IRS $325,000. Oops. And it was very expensive, (laughs) and we got a lot of it fixed, but it's a huge process, and it potentially results in filing a petition with the tax court. Um, but we fixed 325, and we got it down to about $75,000, but it took about a year and a half. Wow. And it's very expensive because at that stage you're paying a, a premium rate for somebody to represent you and fix what you did by not showing up at an audit.
1: And that's part of what you do because you're an enrolled agent. You can do that Yes. where a CPA is not.
0: A CPA, so if you're a Circular 230 prepare and that covers attorneys, CPAs and enrolled agents, all three of those people have the same rights to represent you before the IRS.
1: Accountants don't.
0: That, Yeah. If you haven't passed the CPA exam or if you haven't passed the EA exam, you have very limited rights. Um, but saying that, that doesn't mean that all three of those people are equally qualified. If you're hiring an attorney, you'd want to hire a tax attorney. You don't want to hire a divorce attorney to represent you before the IRS. So that's just a <laughs> just you know, a ridiculous just example. Saying. <laughs> and a CPA is kind of the same thing. You could have chosen the accounting path, became a CPA, and you could be the CFO of a Fortune five hundred company, and you could be really great at your job and you could understand, you know, international taxation and GAP accounting and all this other stuff, but not have the first clue on how to actually deal with the IRS. So picking that person becomes really important in making sure that not only do they have those letters or those credentials, but they also have the experience. Um, Where that differs is typically an enrolled agent, the entire process is geared towards representing people. You become an enrolled agent to add that representation factor where you could add CPA to your name and never touch a tax return. I have lots of CPAs that are clients. They do things that are related to accounting. They do not do things that are related to taxation.
1: Okay, we are going to take a break. If you do have a question, the number is 790-2040. And when we come back, we've got a whole list of more things to talk about. Saving lives means staying informed. Knowing the dangers of using counterfeit prescription pills
0: can help those you care about and keep our community safe. As a parent, educator, neighbor, or friend, we all play a role in building safe and healthy futures for ourselves and our loved ones.
1: Do your part. Take the first step today. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com to access education, prevention, and treatment resources. Counterfeit prescription pills laced with fentanyl are deadly. Be their protector. Be informed. Visit GetSmartAboutDrugs.com. Law Matters live show airs every Saturday morning at 8 when you and I talk with law enforcement. On our next show, we talk with Jennifer Crawford from Tucson Police and author Andy Berger about sex trafficking and the important signs every parent should be aware of. And please support Law Matters on our website, lawmatters1030.org. Every dollar counts and your generosity truly makes a difference. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org.
0: To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to two three three seven three three. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash bluecampaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org
1: or find us on Facebook.
0: Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication between law enforcement and you. 1030 in police code means excessive use or unauthorized use of the radio, something we do with each podcast posted to iTunes and Google Play. Hi, this is Rich Tracy inviting you to join our conversation and asking you to support our mission. Please go to lawmatters1030.org to contribute. No amount is too small.
1: Okay, thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Mark Barnes, enrolled agent and owner of Copper Canyon Tax Service. And we're going through a list of questions that people have sent in. And we have somebody on the phone. Christy has a question. Christy, can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can hear you. My question was, would you please repeat the 1-800 number for the stimulus not received? Can you
1: hear me? Sure, it's one 800 Nine one nine nine eight three five. Sure. 911 No, 919
0: 9835
1: nine, nine, five. Five. Correct.
0: 919
1: nine. Okay. 9 Did you did you get that? Five. Yes. Thank oh. you so much. Okay, no worries. Okay, now I've had people say, I'm a mortgage officer. I ask people, you know, pay stubs, tax returns. And I've had a lot of people say, I'm too old to pay taxes. <laughs> what do you say about that?
0: Yeah, there's there's no age limit on filing taxes. And that applies both on the front end and on the back end of life. Uh, really what you have to look at is, do you have taxable income and do you have a filing requirement? Now, you could be older and not have a filing requirement. And then you legitimately don't have to file taxes. So let's say that you're older, you retired, and the only income you have is the Social Security check that you collect each month. There's a math formula that you go through and the bottom number for ease of this conversation is going to be zero. You will have $0 of taxable income if that's your only source. And if you have $0 of taxable income, you're not required to file. Now, should you? That's a different story to protect your ID, to make sure that things are okay at the IRS and somebody's not using your information. But as far as filing, in that circumstance, no, you wouldn't. You could even have a little bit of income, and still fall below the threshold for filing. What's the threshold? The thresholds are going to be, it's different for every category, but the basics of it are if you're single, it's going to be you have earned income that's less than the standard deduction amount. So about 12800 this year. If you're married filing jointly, the number is double that, which is, what, $25,600. But that applies to things like, wages, or other regularly taxed income, interest, pensions, stuff of that nature. If it falls below that number, you don't have a filing requirement. Now, if there's taxes withheld, you'll want to file so you can get a refund of those taxes. Where things change, if you're self-employed. If you're self-employed, the magic number is, did you have revenue of $400 or more? $400? $400, Self-employment taxes start at $400. So if you have revenue that exceeds, meets or exceeds $400, you have a filing requirement. And then it's the same if you get into things like rental properties and stuff. You're looking at your revenue number, not your net profit. So if you're collecting $1,200 a month in rent and you're single, that's enough revenue that you have a filing requirement, even though you may have no taxable income. So there's different rules for different situations, but as a general rule, being old does not exclude you from filing taxes. And And at the same time, this came up the other day, being old does not mean that they will stop taking Social Security out of your paycheck if you continue to work. Social Security will be taken out of your paycheck from the first check you receive until the last check you receive regardless of your age. So if you're 85 and you're still working, they're still going to take Social Security out of your check. Okay. It's not on here, but somebody asked me that the other day, so. There, go- that's there another you go. one that doesn't have an age limit on it.
1: Well, it sounds like this PIN number Brian told us it would probably become you know a common thing now to get a PIN yeah. number. Um, it sounds like you want to file your taxes and use that PIN number just to protect your identity.
0: You do. Um, we live. This gets into a whole other area, but if you hung out in my office for a day, any day during tax season, I would just shout out every time I got an email that was somebody attempting fraud, or they want to send you documents which are not really documents. It's some type of a There's- EXE file that's going to take over your computer. This time of year, it's not unusual for my office to get six to ten a day. Wow. Um, And we're a smaller office. I mean, you could take that and put that into an office where there's 20 or 30 people working, and you could just multiply that up where they could potentially be getting hundreds a day. Um, So there's tons of people out there that are attempting to steal identity. Having an identity pin... It's a really good idea in the current environment. You just can't lose the letter. I mean, you can get the number back if you need to, but you have to get with the IRS. You have to prove your identity and all the other nonsense that nobody wants to do in the first place.
1: But it's something you need to do to protect your ID. Okay. I've heard. also heard I only have to pay taxes if I get a W-2 or a Form 1099.
0: Uh, if you were tuned in the last time I was on this radio show, we discussed Internal Revenue Code Section 61, and that code says that all income is taxable.
1: So, if you've got a printing, printing press in your basement, you're <laughs> printing out counterfeit money. You have to declare that.
0: If if you're if you're doing counterfeiting, like that's a whole separate problem. I don't want to really. Well, get so robbing
1: banks, but it's still taxable money. Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> So here's the funny thing. I, you show up for work. Your boss pays you in cash. You like to say, I got paid under the table. Um, that's still taxable income. And not claiming that income on your tax return is actually you committing tax fraud.
1: What about things that, you know, money made online? Is that tax-free?
0: It's all. It, if you're making money, it has to default back to what's the source of the income? And typically, if you're making money online, we're going to assume that that's business revenue or you're selling personal items, and that's a different conversation. But if you make money, whether you receive a W-2 or not, whether you receive a 1099 or not, whether it's in the form of cash or check or Bitcoin or bartering, those are all sources of income that need to be reported on your tax return based on what it really is. Did you receive wages and just not get a W-2? That's still wages that needs to be reported as such. Or you got paid in cash and you're considered an independent contractor just because you didn't get a Form 1099 doesn't mean that you don't have business revenue. And not reporting these things all just leads to one answer. You're committing tax fraud by not putting that down. And
1: and then you'll meet Brian.
0: Committing He's a tax- great
1: guy, and I don't think you want to meet him.
0: Yeah, I mean, committing tax fraud is not like I went and stole a pack of gum from the convenience store. Like, people go to jail for committing tax fraud, and you end up paying the taxes, you pay fines. There's 66, penalties that kick in, and those are large. Um, plus, if you're not filing tax returns, the statute of limitations never starts. But if you're filing a fraudulent tax return, it extends that statute of limitations beyond the normal three years. So this isn't like a, I'm not going to report this and everything is going to be okay. If you didn't file a tax return and you received money, the clock never started. I mean, the IRS could literally come get you in 10 or 15 years and hold you accountable for committing tax fraud. I mean, not to say that they are, but as we move... More in the direction of technology and technology being able to track things. There's going to come a point in time where this is going to be a lot harder to hide.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's hard to hide. No, it, it would seem like you know they know everything. Everything's electronic. They all they have to do is go look. So, okay. <laughs> they say that filing taxes is voluntary.
0: Yeah, this is probably my favorite question on the list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what say you? Okay, the word voluntary, it's used in a court case, which was Flora, against the government. And it's used in some IRS publications. And the word voluntary refers to our system of taxation that allows taxpayers to determine the correct amount of tax and complete the appropriate forms. The alternative to this would be the government determining the correct amount of tax and the government completing the forms for you. So the voluntary aspect here is the government's giving you the opportunity to do this correctly versus them just doing it for you. And
1: That would be a time saver, though.
0: It's one of those things. If you're listening and you're like, hey, I got a job and I get a W-2, and this would be a time saver. That's entirely possible that that may work for your situation. But if you're a small business owner, do you want the government just assuming the tax based on your revenue? Or do you want the government to assume the taxes due based on expenses that they've assigned to your business? Or do you as a business owner want to be able to track all of your income and expenses and then report properly?
1: If they took too much, do they give you a refund?
0: Well, that would be the problem with this other type of system: is that everything would be based on them just taking a percentage. And oh. so, di- in the United States, dividends are a great example. If you're a lower income tax per payer, and it's like say fifty thousand single and a hundred thousand married filing jointly, dividends are taxed at zero percent. If we move to some system that was involuntary. There would be a dollar amount assigned to things like dividends. And when you received a dividend payment, the government would just withhold 15%, let's say.
1: That's a chunk.
0: And so, like, that's the difference between the two. It's not that taxes are voluntary, it's that you have the opportunity to report information based on how you've received it and how it should be taxed versus the government just saying, this is how we're going to tax everything. You got a dividend we already withheld 15%. You didn't even get your entire dividend. You got an interest payment from your bank account. We already withheld money on that. And so it would never even get to the point where you had to take care of this because the government's already got money. Whether they got the right amount or the wrong amount, they've already got it. Talk Uh, to me
1: about Bitcoin.
0: Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency or a virtual currency. And there are dozens if not hundreds of cryptocurrencies slash virtual currency out there. Uh, Bitcoin is just the biggest name and it was the first one to come on the scene. Now, this is an interesting topic. Um, The technology behind cryptocurrency is called blockchain and blockchain technology really has an opportunity to change a ton of things for us, for the better. Like, of all the things that have happened in the last 20 or 30 years, like, this really has an opportunity to make things better if utilized properly going forward. The coin itself is its unusual from a tax perspective. It lives in the Internet. It's in the virtual world. And there are people that get paid to track the movement of these coins. They're making a entry in a digital ledger. This ledger is there forever in the blockchain. That's why it has the ability to make things better for us. Um, but that person is a miner and that person not a miner like Young, a miner like pickaxe and you know hard hat with a light on it. <laughs> um, they're self employed. They're in the business of mining cryptocurrency. And so they have income and expenses. They have self-employment tax that's due. So that's one person that may have Bitcoin. You have people that are investing in Bitcoin. And if you're investing in Bitcoin, it's treated the same as if you were buying and selling stocks. Short-term gains, long-term gains, depending on how long you've held it, the same type of rates. It's treated as property from the IRS perspective, which gives us some unique opportunity. So let's flash back to December of 2021. The stock market did fairly well last year. I think the S&P was up 21%. Bitcoin was down. You cannot sell a stock at a loss and immediately buy it back where that falls under the wash rules and that creates tax problems for you. But with Bitcoin, you could sell it at a loss and immediately buy it right back and it doesn't affect your ability to deduct that loss. So from a tax perspective, you could have had all these gains in the stock market. You could have had some Bitcoin that you were holding at a loss, sold that, cleared out all the capital gains, immediately bought back your Bitcoin, and had a tax-free year.
1: Okay, we have a caller. Klein, what's on your mind? Uh, I am a 26-year-old 86 year old male and I'm on Social security. that's my only income. I have uh, three children and I received an amount of money from uh, a settlement on this uh, roundup. and on that money do I pay taxes on that? I'd like to take the full amount. And divide it up with my three kids? Do they pay taxes on that?
0: So I'm not familiar with the payouts from Roundup, so I'm not sure what the payout was for. Um, It it gets into a deeper area where it may or may not be taxable, and since I haven't seen anything on the case, I don't know what they're paying out. I assume it was for health-related items. That's typically not taxable income to you. When you start talking about, I want to take this money and give it to my children, then we get into a different category of gift taxes, and it depends. Um, Your gift threshold for last year was $15,000 per person. So assuming you gifted your children less than $15,000, you have no reporting requirement, and they have no reporting requirement. Oh, that sounded good. If you gifted someone more than $15,000, you as the giver have a filing requirement. The The tax burden, the tax paperwork always falls on the giver, not the receiver of the gift. Okay. So if it was less than 15000 each, you don't have to worry about it. If it was more than 15000 each, you have a potential gift tax filing requirement it doesn't necessarily result in tax but it does need to get filed and it needs to be reported it needs to be reported but yeah it doesn't necessarily result in tax unless you choose to pay tax on it and in all my years if somebody's had a choice nobody has voluntarily paid taxes on their gift tax return okay i appreciate your help thank you very much
1: okay thank you thank you for listening too what about uh, receiving fake 1099s?
0: So this is an interesting one, and we kind of talked about this the other day. Um, so you have you have this real problem where someone is sending out fake 1099s either to previous employees or previous subcontractors or just to people that they've somehow got their name and social security number, or taxpayer ID number, and they're using this as a deduction on their own business return. So one, you have this huge problem at the business level that isn't really my concern. Um, You walk into my office, you've got a 1099 in your hand, and let's throw out a number, $200,000, because they're not doing them for a thousand, and you're like, I don't know who this person is, I never worked there. I've never received any money. It it puts us in a situation where we have a couple of options, and none of them are good. My approach to this is we're going to attach a disclosure statement to your tax return, and that's a Form 8275, and we're going to put on there, I received a 1099, $200,000 $200,000 and I did not put it on my tax return and this is the reason why and I'd have to go find the reason because I don't even know what reason because nobody's ever walked into my office with that problem before <laughs> um, some people will say yeah we'll just put it on there and then we'll create an equal expense that's not really the right approach because if what if the IRS audits you on your expenses yeah
1: Now you have to explain
0: why you received a fake 1099 and you wrote down a fake expense to offset a fake 1099. On the disclosure statement, we're simply saying, look, we're not putting this on the tax return. Here's why. And that way, you're probably going to get a letter anyway because the IRS is going to want to know why you didn't report the $200,000, and at least at that stage, we've already disclosed that we didn't put it on there.
1: Because you didn't work for that person for that year.
0: Yeah. yeah, There's there's a few other things that you could do, and they all lead to more problems down the road. I would just be attaching a disclosure statement that this did not, in fact, happen. Uh, and if you walked into my office and said that, I'm going to have a lot of questions for you. Like, let's just start there. Unless I know you very well, you just show up in my office and I don't know you, I've never met you before, I'm going to have lots of questions. I'm going to want to probably see bank statements. I'm going to need enough information that I can verify that you never had this type of money or never received any of this money before I start filing disclosures on a tax return.
1: Fair enough. Okay, there's a lot of people out there. Well, not a lot. There's a fraction of people out there who believe that taxes are illegal.
0: (laughs) This is, it's an interesting group of people and... I've tried to have a conversation with one or two, and that was enough to take care of that desire for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, The government went through a process more than once. like It happened in the 1800s, and then it happened again in 1916, which led to our current system of taxation. It's there. It's legal. There's been hundreds if not thousands of court cases Um, when we were talking about the voluntary aspect of it uh, Flora sued the government twice 1958 and in 1960 and lost both times as far as taxes are illegal man there's a lot of people that are sitting in jail for tax evasion because they took the position that taxes are illegal I mean we don't have to like them and We don't have to get excited about filing taxes, but all these people that are pushing these crazy theories that it's illegal, it's just going to get people in trouble.
1: Okay. Quickly. What's the difference between a contract employee and an employee?
0: (laughs) The IRS has um, 70 or 80 years of history on this. There's a, basically a 20 point test that you go through and it helps you determine if someone is your employee or if someone is truly independent. Um, and in the last few years, we've really gotten into the weeds because people have had the ability to work from home or work reduced hours. Um, but if they're your employee, it doesn't matter how often or how much they work or where they work. So it really it comes down to a legal aspect of determining if someone is an employee or a contractor.
1: Okay. And that makes a difference on how taxes or certain fees or whatever are taken out of their paycheck correct, so we had a I had somebody ask me yesterday about that and brought the paperwork in we looked it over. It was legal. everything is fine. They didn't try to screw you out of a bunch of money so <laughs> relax okay, I want to thank you. Are there any other questions on here that we we
0: missed um the last one is which is my favorite. Oh. Number yeah. nine.
1: You're you're responsible for everything. I can see it in your eyes.
0: Yeah. Number <laughs> nine is my accountant is liable for making mistakes. When you sign your tax return, that either the ten forty or any of the other tax returns that could be filed, whether it's a ten forty one or eleven twenty, you're signing and the words right after your signature are under penalties of perjury. I declare that I have examined a copy of the income tax return and am now authorizing, and to the best of my knowledge and belief, it is true, correct, and complete. That's next to your signature. That is not next to my signature. You are supposed to review what goes to the IRS before it is submitted. So
1: you're responsible.
0: The taxpayer is ultimately responsible.
1: Even if you don't do any of the math, you're still responsible. Yep. So,
0: there. This is where hiring <laughs> someone that's qualified and doing things legally comes to your advantage. If somebody is filing a bad tax return or taking credits that you're not eligible for, it comes back to you, not the person who prepared the return.
1: So, all those those um, hints that we told you about hiring somebody heed that advice. I want to thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you for having me. Going through all this, it certainly got a lot of emails from people going, hey, ask this. And the 2nd of April, I want everybody to save the date. We're going to be doing a special event. Mark it on your calendar because you're going to want to be there. It'll be uh, at the Burger Theater, so on Speedway, and it's something everybody's going to want to do. More details later. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming in. Shop local. Stay safe. And file your taxes. Get the PIN number. Get the PIN number.